0: Hello and welcome to episode number 316 of the Armin Show podcast, where we have been learning more and in many categories. On this episode, we have the author of this book, Stoic Wisdom, Ancient Lessons for Modern Resilience. It is Professor Nancy Sherman of Georgetown University. Before I introduce her in, she is a professor of philosophy there. She was also the inaugural distinguished chair in ethics at the United States. Naval Academy, has written several books, category of ethics, influential in military ethics, got her master's in philosophy from University of Edinburgh, which I visited a couple months ago, and doctorate from Harvard University in philosophy as well. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Herman. Pleasure to be here.
0: I'm glad to have you on. This topic is one that has been hard hitting, actually, for the last five years. On the internet, it has become much more well-known, kind of like a few other topics that have really popped up. And there are Stoic calendars that guide people throughout the year. And this topic has been explored uh, as far as each philosopher that has guided it. What led you into the field of Stoicism?
1: Well, I come to it uh, from ancient philosophy, from ancient Greco-Roman Uh, ethics in particular. So my PhD is on Aristotle's ethics. um, Many years ago. Um, And uh, I've written for a long time. uh, In ancient ethics, uh, Aristotle, um, not so much Plato, but then I moved it forward to the uh, Enlightenment period. I've worked on Kant and written books on that. So But about the mid-90s, there was a massive cheating scandal at the United States Naval Academy, and I was brought in to brainstorm a bit about ethics and what they called moral remediation, which was a term I typically don't use when I teach. (laughs) But they, um, you know, they had midshipmen, which is uh, the Navy's uh, category for a cadet, and they wanted to teach ethics across the board and across the brigade. So I taught a standard course that I had taught for many years or version of it. Uh, I'd been at Yale for seven years before I was at Georgetown. Um, but when I got to a particular point in the term, which and this wasn't a chronologically set up uh, syllabus, it was thematic, Uh, We were now in virtue ethics, and we we hit Epictetus, uh, a a fairly well-known Stoic, and the little skinny book called The Handbook, or Caridian. And my students and officers alike, you have to picture that I was teaching Marine colonels or had them as my TAs, my teaching assistants, um, admirals, the like, um generals, this was their philosophy. I had hit a home run or you know our boat had come in to stick with the Navy metaphor. and um in part was it was because they had all known deprivation, meaning you know if you go to a if you go to a military academy, you're in boot camp for a long period of time. If you serve as we're now seeing in Afghanistan, Um, and the troops uh, uh, that are processing their war, much is outside your control. Much. And that, being able to cope with the slings and arrows of fortune, just made so much sense to them. So I wanted to think about this more seriously. And I also didn't want to think about stoicism as just suck it up and truck on, which was my students' mantra. Um, Because i also have training in psychoanalysis Um, i don't see patients but i did research training for many years and i've studied the emotions almost my whole life uh, as an academic so uh, i really worried that it would be dangerous if they were just repressing all emotions tucking it up and and marching on so i ended up writing a book called stoic warriors Um, which reflected on my time in the Naval Academy and looked really carefully at texts. I I studied texts um, and trying to see if there was a gentler and less harsh Stoicism. And there was, and one that was about connection and attachment and not suck it up, go it alone grit. We were, we'd been at war for 20 years. Uh, I was known as someone who taught military ethics. I went back to Georgetown My students were coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan, having done multiple deployments, many deployments, um, and I needed to listen to them and hear stuff. So I ended up writing two more books on um, the moral psychology of soldiering and moral injury and moral repair. And then this, I thought I was finished with stoicism, frankly, but I kept it being asked to be on shows, on panels, things like that, where, as you say, Stoicism is hot. Um, It's the self-help philosophy, but also it's not the self-help philosophy that I think of as Stoicism. It's not just about um, tuck up those emotions, go flat, uh, emotionally flat, um, or minimize your relationships because you, they make you too vulnerable. That wasn't the Stoicism I saw. I saw Stoicism as a philosophy that had put forth cosmopolitanism. They were the first to really develop the idea. It's a Greek term, citizen of the universe, citizen of the cosmos, uh, polites, cosmo. And that wasn't their term. It was this very colorful guy, Diogenes the Cynic, who said, I'm I'm from no polis, no city, I'm from everywhere and nowhere, I'm a citizen of the universe, a global citizen. And then the Stoics ran with the idea. And so I wanted to put forth a book that was an exploration of texts that made good on that idea, and made good on the idea that the Stoics um, propose a philosophy where you have emotional... Skin in the game, um, that you aren't invulnerable, um, even if they try to, in some ways, cushion our falls and uh, cushion the surprises in life. So that's how this book came to be. Um, but it's not as if I thought, you know, came to Stoicism yesterday. I'm, I'm a, I have a degree from Harvard in ancient philosophy, so I've worked on this for a long time.
0: This is true. Now, I, I like to mention texts, and as I was reading, and when I think about stoicism, it almost feels like they're talking to me, like they're next to me, even though it was hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Looking at text is always interesting to me because I'm very uh, text-oriented more than visual and video. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed a, almost like a continuum of communication from those philosophers at that time? Epictetus, Aurelius, and Seneca, and others almost passing on a baton to one another to this day?
1: Well, yeah. So Marcus Aurelius, who's the Roman emperor, um, wrote something we now know as meditations, but notes to, uh, to myself or to oneself is what they were called. Um, he, he learned, emperor learns from an enslaved person. Marcus Aurelius learns from Epictetus. Um, Seneca sort of contemporary with Epictetus and, you know, in the court, Nero's court. He's the speech writer for Nero. Not, not you know, not, not in my view, <laughs> would recommend him to the next employer. But, and in fact, um, Nero has him killed. Uh, but he's right, it's the stoicism Stoicism's in the air at that period of time. It gets picked up. The baton gets picked up by the Judeo-Christian religions, um, because of course the Romans are contemporaneous with um, the beginning of Christianity. And prior to that, before the common era, Judaism is out there. So Philo of Alexandria, sometimes called Philo Judaeus, he has stoic inflections, pretty serious ones. Um, And maybe he was reading Seneca, maybe not, we don't really know. Um, and then after that, because it's such a familiar philosophy, if you're raised now in the Judeo-Christian uh, religions, it gets preserved in some ways or other. So it shows up, of course, in the Renaissance, um, Diderot, Montaigne, um, it's just sort of, and it's easy. You know, that's why you say, it's as if they're talking to you. It's easy to digest this. This is not like reading Aristotle's Metaphysics, or Aristotle's logic books. It's not like that. It's much easier. You know, I think Aristotle's Ethics is really easy to read. Or Plato's really easy to read. But this is bite size. You know, they're witty epigrams. In some cases, not not all of Seneca, but Epictetus certainly has sometimes two witty epigrams. I think, but he's a little bit too um, smooth <laughs> at moments.
0: <laughs>
1: um, and Marcus is just writing to himself. He's he's sort of writing a brevi a breviaria. You know, let me humble myself before I die. It's that kind of thing. So and that appeals to people, you know. But also with lots of Stoic philosophy. So it gets passed on. It's bedtime reading if you were educated. Um, it's bedtime reading for Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson. It's bedtime reading for as I say, Montaigne, it's bedtime reading for George Washington, he puts on a play, we think at Valley Forge that talks about Cato, the, Cato the, Cato the kind of stoic hero or, or sage-like figure. And I think a lot of it is because it's palatable. It, um, it's not heavy. That said, in the academic world, it was considered too light, just the reverse not no surprise, you study math, it was just considered, you know, sort of pop stuff. And until academics really started translating the texts, going back to Cicero, for example, who's a transmitter, he would, I mean, he's the great bridge between the Greek world and the Uh, roman latin speaking world he translates a lot of this into latin and and preserves the text we didn't have a lot of text and they start digging around to get extant uh, texts fragments and stuff and making it available for teaching purposes and writing academic stuff on it when that happens there's this nice merging of the popular world and the academic world and you know giving some standing if you like to what had been pretty either not really explored or explored only in very esoteric ways like what is it to what is it to live according to nature what is it to live according to the law uh, God, zeus's law i mean these are complicated questions and you have to go Really searching high and low into the text to answer, but um, so there was this nice merger, I think. And as you say, you know, self-help philosophy goes a, gets a lot of um, a lot of money. <laughs> a lot of people spend a lot of time buying books at airports when they did fly on self-help philosophy. It could be a diet, or it could be how to raise your kids so they stop crying. At, you know, if they're an infant, um, something I think about with my grandchildren, or it could be how to start your day better. And if you've got a little tired of Eastern meditation, why not try Western meditation, which brings us to the topic at hand. Mm-hmm.
0: I want to give a shout out to my old website, Timeless Information, that had a lot of self-help and personal development type material. And that was popular around that time, 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12. One question that comes to mind is, how much of early Stoic philosophy was people's writings in something like a journal of sorts that was not really meant to be put out versus they had it in mind that this should be passed on for the future
1: great so seneca is writing these at the end of his life letters to lucilius a civil servant and we don't really know if they were ever sent you know it's it's a kind of epistolary almost imaginary relationship Hi, dear Lucilius, I loved getting your red letter today. It it was so edifying. I'm so glad you followed my advice about how to not be so gluttonous in your tastes. And, you know, it kind of goes on like that. So he was, and he says specifically, he's writing for posterity. He, He wants, strange for a Stoic, but he wants some glory. He wants to be remembered. So that's Seneca, oh, one of the most masterful writers writing for future generations. Um, and that's true of all of his writings, by and large. And they're quite brilliant. I think they're underestimated. I, I think they're really amongst the best. Marcus Aurelius was just writing to himself. No, you know, and, the, and they have a rambling sense, sensibility. They, he was jotting in the middle of a battlefield, bivouacking, you might say. Um, as the commander in, of, the, of the Germanic campaigns along the Danube in Eastern Europe. and he uh, records suggest that the troops often used not just um, what we would call alcohol, but you know, they might have had some drugs at some point or other. anyway, they have a kind of sleepy sense to sensibility. And he's, you know and he's writing in the wee hours I think, before people wake up and the troop movement starts. And that wasn't meant for us. It's a later find and publication that gives it the name Meditations um, that that gets preserved. I mean, this is just a notebook, just like the one you picked up. I mean, I don't know the specific thing, object he was writing and we don't have that, but we, we, we got it preserved. And he's writing in the language of philosophy uh, which is Greek, but although he's a Latin speaker. It's in Greek. Um, Epictetus is quite deliberate, um, but that, those were, those were f- lectures distilled by a student named Arian. So they were the discourses um, of Epictetus by Arian. He, Epictetus lectured to young disciples. Uh, he himself was freed, he had been enslaved. And he lectured in, uh, you know, in in the Stoa, which is a think of a colonnade, you know, in in uh, maybe um, Jefferson Memorial in my in my town in D.C. where you have a colonnade of of um, Greco-Roman uh, posts um, columns, and it creates and they're on both sides. Fancy universities like Yale and other places have them, and you walk in between, you know, you'd know, walk in the hallway under the, under the portico and the, and, the, and the walls would be frescoed. That's, you know, if there was Plato, Aristotle's Lyceum and Plato's Academy, there was the Stoa for the Greeks where they gathered young disciples, 18 to 22, um, tried to keep their attention, throw out a lot of one-liners, some zingers and um, get them hooked on the philosophy as a moral edification. And that those weren't written. Those are oral lectures, just like Aristotle's were oral lectures that get preserved as I tell my students, make sure you're writing your, your lecture notes really well, because maybe you'll preserve them for me. <laughs> that's how that, that's how it comes to be. Just Socrates was oral, you know, his stuff is Plato's in Plato's hand, his his student. So I hope that answers.
0: Yeah. Uh, It's a great point, and I like the idea of write it clearly because this might be very valuable later on. And the only things that last in the long term are things that you have some vision that they have applicability potentially in the long term too. So maybe writing more fully, you'll think, oh, this might be here later on. Now, one thing that comes to mind is how can one make the difference between the more cold form of Stoic philosophy, which is just Get through it and handle difficulty versus the warmer end you're describing which has um, more emotion to it and uh, it's not as like uh, being in Siberia in some freezing area visually.
1: (laughs) That's a good question. So the Stoics are really sophisticated emotion theorists probably the most sophisticated ancient philosophers of the emotions that we have. And they believed in a few things. One is that emotions are multi-layered and there are three primary layers. One is that they're kind of autonomic arousals, a little bit like what Daniel Kahneman might call fast thinking or Joe Ledoux who studies neurobiology might call um, the um, um, the, the, I forget the low road, it's sort of, you know, this part of the brain mm-hmm. that is processing very or fast. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, although he since distanced himself from his early view, but that that was an early view versus. So that's one and you need it, you know, you need to jump or, or freeze if the bear is in front of you or you hear, as we're hearing right now, you know, uh, bombs go off and cobble, and cobble at the airport. Um, Uh, or you need to shiver and shake or or blanch or or show blush. If if something, I mean, you don't need to, but, but these are typically old reactions, some of which are extremely adaptive. They can overstep reason. You can get too scared to the point of paralysis when you need to be responsive. And so they say, well, you need to know that some of them mature, you know, if if unchecked these emotions, these emotional impulses can become ordinary emotions. And that's what most of us experience. Ordinary fear, ordinary desire, ordinary um, pleasure. Now, they say a lot of those are irrational because they attach to the wrong objects. They don't attach to what's really good or bad. They attach to things you prefer. You want more wine than less wine. You want health rather than disease. You want your children to, to not predecease you rather than live long, you know, and um, and um, instead live long lives. So these are preferred, dispreferred, but you cling to them or or uh, or flee from them with such tenacity or kind of stickiness um, that it gets in the way of smooth sailing. So they say you have to third level. Now you have to kind of get a little distance from them at times. You have to turn them into rational emotions, which in some ways is quite good. Instead of ordinary fear, you have rational caution or wariness. You know, you're aware of the dangers out there and the pitfalls. You're you're not stupid. You were you're aware of disinformation, for example. Um, And they and so on. So they don't think you get rid of all your emotions rather you cultivate them so that you put more monitoring in more effort and maybe what Kahneman would call some more slow thinking layered on top of the fast and impulsive thinking and many of those smart emotions or emotional intelligence you know, we won't be able to have in the nth degree, you know, full perfection like a sage who's a very idealized figure, but we could aspire to more of it. You know, I aspire to not be as frightened about my children's welfare at times or, you know, overly protective, uh, um, you know, of we're now talking about grown children, but we're all attached to people or, or you know, if, if your thing is that you're frightened of your death. Then you want to be able to monitor that fear more rationally. So they aren't saying become a Mr. Spock without any emotional skin in the game. They're rather saying a know what those emotions are. B they're multi-layered, three layers in particular, and that's pretty smart, I think. And um, C the the most um, Sophisticated ones are are the ones that you kind of cultivate where you're not so attached to all those preferred and dispreferred things out there, or, you know, you're not so attached to health over disease. You want it more than you want health rather than disease, but it won't be the be-all and end-all. What's the be-all and end-all is being good or goodness or virtue. That's what you should work on. Um, and, and sort of understand the place of the other things in supporting virtue and avoiding vice. That's a sort of a long-winded answer, but um, it gives you a sense of the complexity of, of stoic thought, um, both in terms of emotional intelligence. I should add that, the, that emotions, when they're not just those arousals, are, are beliefs. So they're, they're strong cognitivists with regard to emotions, which I think is the kind of reigning view of emotions these days, they believe they're appraisals of things out in the world. And your, your, your job is to appraise things out in the world more judiciously, with mm-hmm. a little bit more sensibility.
0: Right, we bring that to it. I have to elaborate on that. There is no long-winded answers. Those are the most informative answers, in my view. So long-winded, that term is X'd out.
1: Okay, but good.
0: <laughs> also, the individuals who became Stoics, did it appear that it was more the experiences that happened to them that led to them thinking about things in a different way, or they were already thinking about things and came to conclusions of their own?
1: Um, a little bit of both. Uh, so, Stoicism was the reigning philosophy, uh, you know, uh, in the early from second century before the Common Era to second century after. It wasn't the only one because there. Uh, once Aristotle's out of the scene, um, the, they're what's called Helen, the Hellenistic, the, the areas being Hellenized or Grecofied. Um, and uh, there are Epicureans, there are skeptics, uh, there are cynics and there are Stoics. Those are just some, there's many others. There's also um, the various Neo-Aristotelians, Neo-Platonists, all that. So, there's a lot of competition out there for followers (laughs) and a lot of debate. I mean, Cicero, for example, is into debating uh, the Stoics in his writings. So there's lively contesting of ideas. It's a very uh, robust marketplace of ideas. And the Many but, but the, 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 the sort of household philosophy is by and large stoicism. You hire a stoic tutor for your kids, you Nero's mother, Agrippina brings Seneca out of banishment. He's in Corsica so that he will train the young what she hopes will be prince and soon to be emperor and she she's... She gets Claudius to bring Seneca out of banishment from Corsica. Corsica then wasn't as nice as it is now. It wasn't the Mediterranean, a Mediterranean jewel island. It was pretty desolate. And it was in part to teach her son letters, you know, great speech, speechifying, because Seneca was the, the best orator around and the best rhetorician. But it was, you know, I think she probably also hoped that he'd be a moral influence on on her son. I'm not sure it worked. But that said, because Nero ends up killing his mother, um, you know, (laughs) that said, there's one, you know, so it is the, it is a, a major dominant philosophy of the time. Were people coming to it independently of it being in the air? I'm not so sure. There was lively you know, debate in the, among the scholars, seeing, you know, he shouldn't really believe that he should believe this. So so I, ha- I have to say, probably, of, in the elite intellectuals, there was, I'm going to choose this because I like it, as a, or I, I can support it through argument, whereas I might not be able to support others. But that's how ancient philosophy goes. They are debating hot and heavily with each other as to whether their views can stand up against the opposition, and but you know, and then there's just household tutors who are giving the ordinary, you know, young young boys typically, but some young girls just uh, moral training.
0: This is good to take into account that. Each item has periods. So sometimes we will look at 100 years from 100 years ago or 500 or 800, and certain things were happening. And it seemed like, or when physics, a lot of physics research is happening, it's all happening around the same time because there's a movement or that's a need on Earth. And then it's applied for a period. And so looking back later, if you just looked at one person, you'd say, wow, they did that. But it was more part of an like a avalanche of uh, effort from many people in that period
1: a school i mean a school of philosophy
0: Mm -hmm. yeah that's a good point actually like a school of fish like a school of philosophy like a school of that's a great point actually it's a package now where does stoicism stand today what does it look like we don't have the same philosophers but we do have various figures and you mentioned like Ryan Holiday has written a book about it, it's popular, you mentioned Tim Ferriss in the book, there's other figures. Where does Stoicism reside today?
1: Well, Stoicism has become a very accessible, popular philosophy. I'm not sure why. Um, I mean, some of it is entrepreneurial efforts. Um, Tim Ferriss uh, is an angel investor uh no longer in silicon valley but previously uh and he knows how to market he has money and he knows how to market jack dorsey who is a uh, a a, a subscriber to various uh philosophies including buddhism at times and has gone on retreats also uh likes aspects of stoicism and and he's got a lot of money and he has a megaphone needless to say (laughs) called twitter (laughs) Um, or square up. Um, uh, Ryan Holiday probably came to stoicism a bit on his own through a a personal crisis, but he is a public relations guy. That's how he's trained. His background is in PR, um, and he's very good at it. So If you're asking why and how, you know, capitalism is a part of the story here. (laughs) These people who have made big dents uh, on the consciousness and buying habits of Americans and internationally probably uh, have a lot invested in that and are good at it. That's what they do as business persons. So I don't think it's particularly fair to say, ah, just, you know, it's just popular on its own merit. I don't think that's fair. That said, there's something else going on in addition to entrepreneurial know-how and and also uh, social media and the internet. And that is that it's a secular religion. It's become a secular religion. Many don't want to subscribe to or be part of the religious backgrounds that they may have inherited as part of their family um, um, background, ethnicity, or you know, whatever it, whatever it is. They they want to go out on their own, or there's oppressive aspects to it, or they don't want an institution that has a building um, and that requires you show up on certain days of the week or, or, you know, or, or toe the line in certain ways. They want it, you know, they want it when they want it, on your phone, on your app, um, et cetera. So secular and as I said earlier, Stoicism has this amazing overlap with Judeo-Christian ideas because it was born at the same time. I mean, it's not as if the Greco-Roman world, you know, got sort of buried, you know, under Mount Vesuvius eruption. It was there, you know, the Romans were very, very, uh, had to cede power to, Christianity and to judeo-christianity to some degree right so it sounds very familiar to things that people were raised on in many cases not all you know there's vast swaths of the world that were not raised on judeo-christian religion Muslim Buddhist many other um, you know uh, Eastern religions and the like but for some it has a resonance and even if you've you're immersed in Say Eastern religions. There's another. It's a resonance. You know, meditation sounds familiar. It's a very different meditation because the, the Greek world and Roman world is discursive. It's about talking to yourself. It's it, Freud got that. It's about working stuff out through through chatter. You know, were you too hard on your? Were, were you too hard on a servant today? Did you lose your cool? Did you get angry when you shouldn't have? Did you, were you pissed off because you weren't put at the head dais at the banquet? This is Seneca talking at the end of the day about in his meditations. They're very, they sound very familiar. And it's a little bit, it can get very, can be a heavy superego. Stop doing that. You, you know, that's not good. You know, that's not a way in which um, psychotherapy often goes. It's let go of some of the beating up of yourself. But the Stoics are moralists. They're moralists that somehow think heavy moralism can bring you calm. And if it doesn't, then something else can bring you calm. Anticipating your future fears, premeditation, pre-rehearsal of bads, it's called, thinking about death. um, meditating on death so that it doesn't catch you by surprise. Um, so there's there's um, various, re- it's not just entrepreneurial and it's not just secular religion. There's definitely a lot there that's really, really worth preserving. I'd say there's one other bit there and that is Silicon Valley, of course, has a notion of life hacks and bio life hacks. And there's the, the notion that small little um fixes can go a long way and this could be part of your psychological habits of the day you can do small fixes um think about anticipated fears pre-rehearse dwell in the future a little bit and that can neutralize the uh the fear object that you might have with regard to the future it might also i would say it might also get you um you know cause uh much stress it it, it could it could make you hyper vigilant as opposed to hoopo vigilant under vigilant but you know this is a risk the stoics will take that you'll that you'll neutralize the the feared object a little bit if you anticipate it and get used to it and um, and um, it might lose some of its toxicity
0: this is a good point i have thought sometimes about I have presupposed things in the future or thought about them. And then you can't think of all the possibilities. But if you think of a few, then when you get there, you might have already processed what would occur. So it's not as yeah out there of sorts.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: Now, if someone saw a Stoic, how would someone recognize a Stoic in public? Is there any ways they could sense that someone had that? Or how could someone um, take in some Stoic? Philosophy for themselves how could they apply it in their daily life well
1: they could recognize someone because they'd be wearing a toga right (laughs) that's (laughs) the first thing
0: (laughs) that's it we found them
1: (laughs) that said how could you recognize i'm not sure it would show on the outside um uh you know they might say that they journal you know they and they meditate at night or they meditate in the morning and by that not clearing their mind of all thought but quite the reverse, thinking, anticipating the snares and, and slings and arrows that might fight, uh, face them during the day. And as you say, um, anticipating it, uh, Cicero uses the phrase dwelling in the future so that the future is, a, is less shocking or surprising. Um, so you might you might sort of see that. Um, I, I'd say, and this is totally, um, Undervalued uh, currently in the stoic conversation, modern stoic conversation, and that is they are committed to goodness. They're committed to virtue, to being good. Um, and to go, and if that's hard. uh, And a third, you know, so one is they might meditate in some fashion or other. They're committed to virtue, goodness. And the third thing is that they take very seriously something that Marcus Aurelius put in the best. Uh, words. Um, If you've ever seen a body strewn on a battlefield with body parts severed from the trunk of the body, that's what we make of ourselves when we cut ourselves off from each other. That idea of being socially connected and the grit and resilience coming from social connection is what I talk a lot about in the book. The idea of resilience so important right now as we're coming into a, as we're not out of a pandemic for a year and a half and maybe entering a new uh, phase that's quite frightening, is that we are supported through our networks of mutual um, benevolence and goodwill. We know that as parents that no child can really make it without a supportive network. We know this as mental health experts. Um, and, And that's a stoic lesson. It gets lost in the current modern stoic conversation by and large, which sort of thinks about go it alone, grit, kind of Marlboro man make it on your own. I don't think that's uh, the full story. I think it's a distortion. And um, I wrote the book, uh, Stoic Wisdom, really to correct the distortion. Now, can you see it on the outside? Yeah, so if you see people supporting each other, uh, figuring out how we're in it together and committed to collective welfare, Uh, and I don't mean that in any political sense, but I mean the, the welfare of, not just me on my own, but us together, then you've got some inkling of what it might be if we followed Stoic ideals.
0: This is a clear message of pushing out the noise and going back to the signal of Stoicism as possibly originally intended. This is great. Professor Nancy Sherman, I would like to thank you for having been on this episode, informed us a lot given us a bit of a culture along the way some of the timeline the individuals involved and explained what stoicism is and how it can apply today
1: and i just want to say in conclusion that stoic wisdom um, is out there on all platforms you can listen to it you can read it in a hardback you can borrow it from the library as i see you have or you can uh read it on your kindle
0: that sounds great
1: Thank you
0: so much. On here.
1: Thank you very much, Armin. A pleasure.
0: And we are out.